0: Good morning. My name is Beverly Lapp, and I oversee the Convo program and and CORE currently. Very glad to have you here for this special Convo with Mike Tidwell. Mike is a visiting author on our campus who wrote this book, Ponds of Kalambai, which we're in our third year of reading in the Identity, Culture, and Community class. When I met Mike yesterday for the first time, he said, how in the world did you find this book? And I told him that uh, the Core 100 team wanted a book that would help our students and help us think about cross-cultural engagement and who we want to be when we are in cross-cultural settings and the struggles and questions we may encounter. And that Tom Myers found this book, Director of International Ed here at Goshen College had read it and recommended that we take a look at it. So we can thank Tom for leading us to this text and to this experience with With Mike he spoke last night on climate change he spoke the last hour to the ICC class about the book his time in the former Congo in the late 80s I'm sorry in in central Congo the former Zaire in the late 80s has profoundly impacted his current work in climate change this morning he's particularly gearing his comments to your generation as young people and how young people can change an old debate. Please join me in welcoming Mike Tidwell. I also want to note that when Mike is done, and there may be time for questions towards the end, uh, when those are done there's going to be a quick announcement from Hannah Yoder with EcoPack. so please stay in your seats.
1: Thank you, uh, Beverly Lapp, for that introduction. Thank you again to Goshen College for having me, and uh, thank you to all the students. It's. Uh, it's been a whirlwind 24 hours that I've been here. Uh, I've met so many of you, so many faculty. i uh, been out to the Mary Lee property where you have wonderful prairie grasses and forests and lakes and uh, students and uh, a really great experience there. It's been great, the, the sharing and the experiences of the students, learning about your overseas experiences, uh, and frankly, your commitment to social change Uh, to moral issues uh, and to academic rigor. I've just been really uh, inspired and impressed by my visit. Um, So I'm honored to give this convocation uh, and to be here uh, before you. And I've talked about a number of topics already since I got here, Um, but this one is, as Beverly said, I just wanted to take a moment to talk about climate change which I believe is the number one issue that's going to affect your life, the rest of your life, whether we fully understand it yet or not, I believe it's a reality. Um, And I just wanted to talk to you a little bit of how you might fit into the growing movement across the United States and across the world in solving this problem from a justice perspective, from a practical perspective, from a... Sure would be great if, if civilization survived perspective. Um, and I want to begin by saying, um, look, we all grow up knowing that our parents take care of us, right? Our parents are always looking out for us from the earliest age. Our earliest, defini- our earliest memories, by definition, are of our parents feeding us, clothing us, holding our hands, crossing the street it's a relationship that we assume will last our whole lifetime I can remember as a very young age I think I was about four years old uh, four or five just had learned how to swim but not very well being at a swimming pool in the apartments that my family lived in at the time in Georgia and having a little boat that I was playing with in the shallow area and there was no one in the pool Uh, except for me, Uh, my mom was in the distance talking to a friend of hers uh, on a beach chair. And this boat, as I swam and played with this boat, it started to drift into deeper and deeper water. And before I knew it, I was in water well over my head, to my great surprise, treading water and realizing I'm not that good of a swimmer yet. Treading water, treading water, getting more panicked, And then finally seeing my mom, like superwoman, come running in the distance, taking a great diving jump into the pool, snatching me with superhuman strength, yanking me to the side of the pool, and then beginning to yell at me like crazy. (laughs) And I remember after first um, calming down myself and seeing her calm down, realizing that she saved my life, and that's what moms and dads are supposed to do. But today, when it comes to the greatest threat facing your future as young people, your ability to get a job one day, your ability to raise your own family, and to put food on the table, when it comes to those fundamental human rights, I submit to you that your parents, and by your parents I mean the older generation, the grown-ups, if you will, out there in the real world right now, supposedly looking after grown-up things and taking care of the younger people, those grown-ups, your parents, are failing you on the issue of climate change. They are not taking care of this issue. They are not taking care of you. And indeed, the world's ultimate father figure, The Pope himself, the Holy Father, was in the US last week, and he himself admitted that the older generations are failing, that there is an issue of intergenerational justice or injustice that's being played out in the form of global climate change. These were the words of the Pope himself. Now, this is a guy who understands intergenerational justice. How many of you guys saw, as the Pope Mobile was going through Washington, D.C. last week, there was this beautiful little girl, she must have been maybe four years old, and she had a flag and a letter to give to the Pope, and she broke out of the sidewalk security and and ran out into the street, and the Pope was going by in his vehicle, and all the security agents were, like, pushing her aside and guarding her, and and the Pope looked over and saw this beautiful four-year-old girl, and he started to wave her forward. He said, no, let the children come to me. And, and, and they brought her to him and he leaned down, and he kissed her, he gave her a blessing, she gave him a gift. This is a guy who understands that the young, the innocent come first and that we should hold them in the highest regard. And that he simultaneously lamented on the fact that we are creating a world that is not hospitable for young people that it is not creating a sustainable pathway for young people like that young girl who he greeted on the streets of Washington, DC. The Pope released a letter in June called an encyclical. It's a book-length uh, letter. It's actually a book. I've read it. Uh, it is a letter not only to all the world's 1.2 billion Catholics. In this letter, the Pope says, he wants to address all the world's Catholics, yes, on the issue of climate change, but it's also a letter to all people of faith, of all manner of faith. And beyond that, he says, it's a letter really to all people of goodwill all over the world. This is the one moral figure that most of the people in the world listen to, the Pope himself. And in this encyclical, he makes a 150-page plea for us all to do better on this issue that we must do better, why? Because the planet is warming, we know that it's warming. Satellite images of the Arctic tell the story. We have a satellite photography from the late 1970s forward that show polar ice getting smaller and smaller every year. We have lost 40% of the ice in the North Arctic just since the 1970s because the planet is warming. Sea level is rising. It's measurable. It's observable. Already, entire Pacific Island nations are disappearing because of rising oceans. Imagine that. Entire nations in the South Pacific disappearing. One day, we're going to have to go to the United Nations building in New York and have a ceremony to lower their flag of these countries that are disappearing. And drought, extreme weather, California. It no longer rains in California anymore unrecognizable weather everywhere you go including here in Indiana. It's either too wet, too dry, too cold, too hot. There's no normal. And we know, as the Pope said before the United Nations last week talking about climate change, and as he says in his encyclical, we know what's causing it. It's our use of fossil fuels, oil, coal, and natural gas. When you burn these fossil fuels, one byproduct is an odorless, invisible gas, carbon dioxide, that migrates to the atmosphere, stays up there for about 100 years, and traps heat. It's straightforward science. And as the Pope says in the encyclical, this climate change that we are knowingly allowed, allowing to happen that we know what is causing it this climate change is a massive issue of intergenerational injustice and he calls on all people to do something about it he calls on people of my age the grown-ups to do better that we have not done enough we have not fulfilled our responsibility to the young and he calls on the young to demand more, and to grow up in a hurry to become active, to seize your future now while we still have a chance. You know, President Obama said just a couple of weeks ago, we the living now, we are the first generation of people on this planet to really feel the consequences of climate change, to feel them in a daily way. And we are the last generation simultaneously to have the ability to do something about it. So we live in just remarkable times. And so I call on you as young people especially to take action, because the pope is right. Those of us with graying hair are not taking care of the problem, and also because you young people must and can get involved. I mean, we need a mass movement to overcome the very, very powerful fossil fuel industry. Um, The pope reminds us in his encyclical that Polluting companies, the big energy companies like ExxonMobil and Peabody Coal, they tend to find their way every time there's a treaty Uh, conference, international treaty meeting to write a treaty about climate change, the polluting companies show up and through their money and their lobbying, they finally, they figure out a way to make sure that the wording of that treaty or that national law, wherever it's passed in the world, winds up being written in a way that allows the polluting companies to keep doing exactly what they're doing. That the status quo keeps being reinforced and reaccepted, even though we talk a good game about doing something about climate change and that we have to overcome the money and the access and the influence of the polluting fossil fuel industry and to do that to overcome it we have to have a mass movement of people it's the only way it's ever been done it's the way the abolition movement worked a mass uprising of people demanding moral change the civil rights movement the same a mass movement to overcome apartheid here in america the protest movement against the vietnam war in each one of these movements students were not just involved young people weren't just part of the movement young people were at the center of those movements and that's what we need in the climate movement we need people like you at the center of this movement, like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee during the Civil Rights Movement, SNCC, students from across the country who pushed Martin Luther King to go further and faster because as students they completely rejected the inherited injustice of apartheid in this country. The Vietnam protest movement, in the late 60s and early 70s. Mass gatherings, mass protests in Washington surrounding the White House. And you know, I've read a number of memoirs by both the protest leaders who at the time wondered, are we really making a difference? Yeah, we're out here being noisy and protesting and mass movements and yelling and chanting toward the White House, but are we really getting anything done? There was a sense of, is this really working? And then you read the memoirs of Richard Nixon and his highest ranking officials who were in the White House at the time, and they were completely freaked out by the students. They felt so much pressure, like that these kids are going to take over, and that it accelerated Therefore, the end of the Vietnam, of war, that is an amazing power. So you can make a difference. And I appeal to you today to make fighting climate change and fighting for clean energy solutions, for wind power, for solar energy, throughout Indiana and across this country, to make that fight part of your life, to make it part of your life, because it is part of your life and it will be part of your life. Um, here's why I dedicate myself to fighting climate change. These are my motivations. First of all, I fight climate change for my son, who's the age of many of you here. He's a freshman at Worcester College, born 1997, Michael Alexander Tidwell. He is the world to me. He is everything to me. And I live in constant concern every day. With each new satellite photograph of the shrinking Arctic, I live with concern that he is going to have, my son, a fraction of the opportunities in his lifetime that I've had in my lifetime because of climate change. So he motivates me. Second motivation is my faith, my Christian faith. I believe utterly that this great, glorious creation of our planet is a gift and it is not ours to destroy. The Bible tells us that we have to be good stewards of the planet, not to have reckless dominion over this planet. So my faith and also my Peace Corps experiences, many of you have now heard me speak over the last 24 hours uh, about my experience living in poorest Africa in the Congo in tiny villages where it wasn't a matter of clean wind-powered electricity versus dirty coal-fired electricity. These people I lived with didn't have electricity. It wasn't a question of, you know, clean hybrid Prius car versus gas-guzzling SUV. These people don't have cars or roads. You're talking about people who contribute almost nothing to global warming. Africa as a continent with almost a billion people, contributes maybe three or four percent of all the world's greenhouse gases. And yet this continent, this innocent continent, is being walloped by the mega droughts, and the floods, and the sea level rise, and the radical disruption to our delicate climate system, even though they've contributed almost nothing. In a perfect world, of course, it would be different. The United States, On the other hand, we have 5% of the world's population. We generate about 25% of all the world's greenhouse gases. Historically, it's been even more. About 30% of all the CO2 in the atmosphere right now has come from the United States. In a perfect world, if we generated a quarter of all the world's atmospheric pollution leading to global warming, we would get 25% of all the world's warming right on top of our country right? Just telescope down on top of us. And if we were to, if that were to happen, if we got our fair share of the warming, then the United States would already be ruined as a country. Our economy would already be destroyed. Florida would already be a series of islands. Kansas would be a scrub desert. But since we can share the warming with Africa and share the warming with South Pacific Island nations and share it with people in Bangladesh who contribute almost nothing to the problem, we don't get that worked up about it. And I submit to you that this is utterly and completely morally unacceptable, that we are now knowingly doing this, knowingly, disproportionately creating the pollution that is the source of the problem, and knowingly, unfairly distributing the consequences to innocent people all over the world. You know, John F. Kennedy Created the Peace Corps that I had the honor to serve in in the 1980s. In the early 1960s, Kennedy created the Peace Corps. He had survived World War II. He had seen the mass destruction that comes from war, and he was determined to avoid war in the future. And he knew that if you're really going to have peace and avoid war, you have to address poverty and injustice. So he created the Peace Corps to send young people like you and young people like me 30 years ago from the solution nation, the United States, the nation with the technology and the wealth, to send young people from the solution nation to the problem nations, the poor nations around the world in Africa, South America, and elsewhere. Now this might have been a slightly paternalistic early 1960s view, But that was the view, solution nation, helping problem nations. Now, 30 years later, uh, over 200,000, or 50 years later, almost 200,000 Americans have served in the Peace Corps, uh, myself included, and I'm proud to be part of that number of people who, because of our work, means that there are people all over the world who are slightly better educated, slightly better fed, slightly better clothed, because of Peace Corps volunteers. However, in the year 2015, in a world of rapidly intensifying global warming, everything that Kennedy thought about has been turned on its head. Now the United States is no longer the solution nation. We are the world's problem nation. We are the problem. We are now wrecking our one and only life-giving climate, threatening agriculture, threatening coastal cities all over the world because of our reckless use of fossil fuels. So what are we going to do about it? We have to take personal action, of course. We need to do everything we can in our personal lives to reduce our carbon footprint. uh, 15 years ago when I became a full-time climate activist. It's the first thing I did. I put solar panels on my roof. I started heating my home with corn kernels, organically fertilized corn kernels. Um, I you know, bought an energy-efficient refrigerator car. I became a vegetarian. I mean I became hideously green, obnoxiously green in my personal life. And by the way, I, I mentioned that I became a vegetarian as a way to fight climate change yesterday, and a couple of students afterwards came up to me and asked me, what's the connection between vegetarianism and a low-carbon footprint? And I, I realized not everyone draws that connection. The connection is that raising meat, growing cattle and, and pigs and fowl, is very, very energy intensive. It takes a lot of resources. takes a lot of land. takes a lot of grain, a lot of herbicides and pesticides and farm fuel for tractors and then once the animals are slaughtered they have to be refrigerated a very energy intensive process Uh, and therefore if you eat meat you are consuming a vast quantity of fossil fuels if you don't eat meat you dramatically reduce the amount of fossil fuels that are part of your carbon footprint and so I became a vegetarian I eat a great vegetarian diet Uh, I've eaten only vegetarian food since I've gotten here, you know, vegetarian pod Thai, Thai food. Look, eating a vegetarian diet is very, very simple. Um, You know, I've done some very difficult things in my life. I've quit smoking. I survived being in the Peace Corps. I've learned foreign languages. I've done some hard things in my life, but being a vegetarian isn't even on the list of top 20 hard things I've done. And it's an enormous way that you can help fight climate change in your personal life. In fact, going meat-free in your diet does more for the climate than driving a hybrid car versus an SUV or changing all your light bulbs. So that's one thing to consider. We have to take personal steps. But beyond that, we have to do more. Look, this is a nation of laws. We are a nation of laws. And if we want to change this nation, we have to change the laws. Uh, Which is why, you know, I have gotten involved in lobbying and legislative campaigns and pushing for better policies. You know, think about it. Think about the civil rights movement. You know, we didn't in the 1960s ask the, you know, bigoted southern sheriffs and university presidents to voluntarily go integrated one day a week and give it a try and see how they liked it. There are some times in human history when the moral offense is so profound, so wrong, that we have to ban the practice. We have to eliminate it through law. And that's what we did in the civil rights movement. We have to do that with the climate movement. It is wrong of us to burn coal to keep the lights on. We need to phase it out by statute. And to do that, again, you have to have a movement. You have to get involved. You have to press for changes in laws which is why I formed the Chesapeake Climate Action Network 14 years ago to lobby in state capitals and at the U.S. Capitol for our leaders to do better so that the grown-ups could start taking care of all the generations to come. And in that process of being an activist, I have seen the power of young people. I have seen the power of students. You know, when young people go to mayors and they go to county council members or they, they go to state legislators or they go on Capitol Hill. When there is a young person in the room, when there is a student in the room, it changes the dynamic. Those leaders who are so cynical and deal with so many lobbyists and cynical people peddling bad influences, they see someone young and they realize this is a real person. This is real ethical interaction that's pure that's from the heart. They don't look at you guys, you know, a 19 or 20-year-old from Goshen and think, what's your angle, man? How are you trying to play me? They hear you. It is incredibly powerful. I've seen it time and time again. I've seen students peacefully, through civil disobedience, arrested on the steps of Congress and in state houses, transforming legislative process by their bold actions. So I encourage you to get involved in the political process. You know, we had a a questioner last night, when we were here last night, who mentioned how uh, the Mennonite community historically has been really, really great about asking moral questions and encouraging uh, 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 moral action within the Mennonite community, but not as good at stepping out of the community and raising the Mennonite voice toward legislatures and toward Congress and toward elected officials. That's just not been a a core part of the Mennonite experience. And as a result, there have been Mennonite communities persecuted. Uh, There have been changes that are not positive and improvements that have not been made because of a hesitancy to step out of the community and raise the voice in a more public sense. And that, and that, that that needs to change. So I encourage you to think about ways that you can get involved. Now, we all know about the divestment movement that's happening across this country, especially on campuses, where students are demanding of their administrations. Why are you teaching us and preparing us for the future? Why are you encouraging us to have an optimism about the future and handing us tools to have a better future, while at the same time you take our money and you invest it in part in fossil fuels that are destroying our future. It doesn't add up. You have to stop investing your money in oil, coal, and natural gas. And many universities are hearing that call. Bill McKibben wrote an amazing, the great writer and activist Bill McKibben wrote a transformative essay in Rolling Stone magazine four years ago three or four years ago uh, called the terrifying new math of climate change and in it he used some really amazing new studies that showed that the fossil fuel industry has billions and billions of tons of coal reserves in the ground billions of barrels of oil in the ground billions of cubic feet of gas and tar sands oil that in known reserves that are in the ground all over the world and that these fossil fuel companies, even in a world of rapid climate change, even as the Arctic ice melts and sea levels rise, these fossil fuel companies have every intention of bringing up every last piece of coal, every barrel of oil and gas up to the surface and lighting it on fire. That is their business model. But if you calculate what scientists tell us is the capacity of the atmosphere to take more CO2, you realize that mathematically no more than maybe 20% of the known reserves of fossil fuels can come up out of the ground and be combusted. That 80% of all the known oil, coal, and natural gas in the ground has to stay in the ground if we're going to have anything resembling a planet where civilization can exist. And so that voice has gone out there. 80% of the reserves have to stay in the ground. The fossil fuel industry has to be denied those resources by law through a movement and the divestment movement is a key part of that it's not easy though it's not like throwing a switch to just divest from fossil fuels you know churches and and colleges are finding that it's not as simple as all that it takes time and so while many of you are part of the divestment movement and have every right to demand change right now every right to be angry every right to be passionate about this issue Keep in mind that we also have to have some patience, that it can't happen overnight. I know that this institution, Goshen, divested from coal 10 years ago, long before people were even talking about divestment, and is also committed to divesting more. And I encourage you, students who are involved in this dialogue, to stay in the dialogue, push hard, but also be patient, be generous, be understanding that it can't happen overnight, but that it has to happen soon. So get involved. Get involved not just on your campus, get involved beyond the campus. Again, this issue is going to dominate your future. And I mean, think about it. Of all the issues that we care about, marriage equality, increasing minimum wage, ending wars abroad, all of these things, these other issues that we care about, will not will not have positive conclusions if we don't also solve the climate issue, I mean, think about it. We could cure cancer tomorrow morning. We could wake up tomorrow and, you know, the, the scourge of human history, the most deadly disease is gone. We've cured cancer. But if we don't also solve the climate crisis, we won't have good health. We will have more disease from spreading malaria and food insecurity and all the things the violent weather that causes death and destruction. We will not have good health. Uh, Think about peace. What if we were able to, tomorrow morning, erase hate from every human heart in the world? No more hate. It's gone, our greatest fantasy. No more hate. And if there's no hate, there can be no more war. You know, what anthropologists call organized intergroup homicide will end. No more war. We can bring the troops home from Iraq, disband the Pentagon, No more war, no more hate. We could even achieve that, but if we don't also stabilize the climate, it won't matter because we won't have peace. We will have violent weather. We will have Rita and Katrina and Wilma and Hurricane Sandy over and over again. The violence of drought, the disruption of nations because of a change in climate. So we have to prioritize this issue of climate change. We have to move it to the top of our list. But don't be cynical. I mean, it's easy to be cynical, to look at Congress, to look at the circus that many turn our politics into, and to think, yeah, this is an urgent issue. We have to solve climate change. But it's impossible. The grown-ups are truly out of control. They are acting like children. They are not taking care of business. It's easy to get cynical. I understand that. But it can be done. We've overcome more. We've overcome more dysfunction in this country than we're seeing now to achieve great achievements. And it can be done. And I want to tell you, don't feel like, don't let yourself believe that you're not qualified to get involved. I mean, I come from a print journalism background. I had no training whatsoever in environmental studies or whatever. And I formed my own nonprofit because I was determined. I was driven. I felt a moral calling. I felt a calling from my faith to take action, and that is 90% of what you need. If you are determined and you are passionate, you will go far, you will achieve great things as an activist. So don't be denied on this issue. But, you know, I give a lot of talks across the country and people say, okay, we hear you, Mike. We hear that it's a crisis. We understand that we need to do something about it. But tell us, what is the one single most important thing that we can do to get involved in this movement? Please don't give us a list of 100 things to do. Don't even give us a list of 10 things to do. We're busy. We've got classes. We've got family obligations. We've got, you know, choir practice. Give us one thing to do. So here's that one thing. Get on the email list of one group that's completely committed to the issue of climate change and clean energy. Pick a group and just sign up for their email alerts. There are a lot of groups out there here in Indiana. There's a wonderful group called Hoosier Interfaith Power and Light. It is a group of interdisciplinary faith groups who are working on the issue of clean energy here in Indiana. And there's a national Interfaith Power and Light. It's a great group. Find them on the internet. There'll be a tab that says, do you want to get our email alerts? Click on it and get involved. Why? Because then you can develop a relationship with that group. You'll start seeing there's going to be a rally on this date. Here's a letter we'd like you to send to the governor. Here is an action happening in Washington, D.C. If you can make it and you can develop a relationship with a group working on this issue so that's the key pick a group and develop a relationship and the number one way to do that is to become involved in getting their email alerts nationally there's a great group called 350.org founded by my friend Bill McKibben who's been on this very campus get involved with them sign up for their alerts it will allow you the chance to make climate change part of your life make this part of your life you know we can do it we can overcome this challenge and we can fulfill our obligation to prepare for a better world, not just for ourselves, but all those who come after us. And, you know, it's, it's gonna be close. We're in a race against time. You know, my son, who's 18 years old, when he was a few years younger, he asked me, you know, he's like, Dad, I hear some of the things you say in audiences about how dire the situation is on climate change, are we gonna make it? Are we gonna do this? Are we gonna solve this problem? Are we gonna win? And since he's a sports crazed young man, I decided to use a sports analogy and giving him an answer. And I said, son, it's gonna be close. We're like a football team down by two touchdowns with two minutes left and we got no timeouts. Now, has a football team ever won under those circumstances? Of course! At the high school level, college level, even in the NFL, it can be done. It has been done. But what does it take? It takes amazing leadership, dedication, a great battle plan, amazing teamwork. Everybody's got to work together. we got to move the ball down the field. We can't ever, ever give up. We have to continue to believe that we can win. And it also takes a little bit of luck to come back from two touchdowns down with no timeouts. So we got to have that mix. We all got to get involved. It's a race against time. I think that we can do it. I believe that we can do it. I'm still in this fight. I give all that I can for my kid, for you, and you can do the same. Make this part of your life and let's solve this problem. Thank you very much. I, I think we have time for one or two questions, if anyone has any questions. You can either stand up and shout it out. How do you feel about the governance model of insider influence uh, investing
2: in companies that are maybe less than good and using that position as a way of trying to create change? Is that a bad model, or is
1: that just giving money to not-so-good companies? Um, so the question is, you know, what about investing in, in companies in a way to steer them toward doing better and doing good? Um, you know the whole divestment movement has the the, the second arm of that is reinvestment. Uh, so divest from the bad stuff, reinvest in the good. Um, I, I I think it's a it's a model that can work with certain corporate personality types. There's some corporations that it won't work, and you're you're wasting your money. Uh, but uh, there, there are other ways uh, to get involved with corporations. There's a whole shareholder movement where people buy stocks in companies that they know are bad actors in order to go to the shareholder meetings and introduce shareholder resolutions demanding that the companies do better, whether it's minimum wage or climate change, whatever it is. So I think that we have to be engaged with companies that we need to do better. Uh, and we can do that with our, with our investment dollars, certainly. So uh, great question, Um, gets back to the divestment movement and the perception by some students that the administration here could do more, uh, that there's a proposal on the table, a 30-page proposal that details some of the exact steps that should be taken from the perspective of students to divest faster. Uh, So what would I say to the administration? First of all, I would just reiterate to you, the students, don't slow down. Don't give up. Don't stop demanding. Don't stop insisting. Other students are doing this. Victories are happening at different levels and in different ways on campuses all across the country. And these changes, universities are divesting precisely because you guys are demanding it. I mean, even the best universities have not been going as far as they need to until students starting to, started to demand it. Universities are powerful. Power tends to, as we know, yield little without a demand. So I would say to the students, keep pushing, keep demanding, keep doing what you're doing. But again, I would also say, I mean, I've met a wide number. I'm, I'm here because you have faculty who care about the issues I came here to speak about. I'm, they could have invited lots of different people to come speak. They invited me precisely because they want me to talk to you about divestment. They want me to talk to you about climate change and about being better global citizens. And that is enormously to their credit. And I also know that in the last 24 hours that I've been here, I've met with many of the faculty. I've been to the Mary Lee facility. I've seen the solar panels on the facilities there, the the wind turbine. I know that the university divested from coal 10 years ago, but I also know that the university still invests in, in some fossil fuels. Um, but again, it, it's not something that you can just throw a switch and change it. There's enormous will on the part of the faculty and the administration here to do better and they're working on it. I mean, that's, that's, that, that's my fundamental impression from being here. So the both sides have to keep going. You have to have that conversation. It can be passionate, has to be respectful, but also does have to have an element of patience. All right, thank you.
2: If you could stay in your seats for just two more minutes, that would be great. I have a quick announcement. Thank you, Mike. My name is Hannah Yoder, and I'm one of the co-leaders for Ecopax this year. If you want to be involved locally, as Mike suggested, then we have um, some information for you. Up on this slide, you can see the website, 350.org. It's a leading organization in climate change activism, and they are planning several worldwide movements in the coming months, leading up to the UN Global Climate Summit in Paris, and that will be November 30 to December 11th. So, it is our time in Goshen to join the movement and we as a college and a community need to stand for combating climate change on a personal and institutional level. EcoPACS, Goshen's Environmental Club, GC Divest, and Transition Goshen will be partnering to plan and host 350.org events on November 28 and 29 and December 12. If you feel moved to action by Mike's words and you find yourself wondering what to do next, then please join us next Wednesday, October 7th, at 7.30 p.m. for a planning meeting. And you can look for more about that um, on posters and in the the communicator this coming week. And we're hoping to start a 350.org regional chapter here in Goshen. Thank you.